into what I want to say. I, uh, did you see the story? I don't know if it was carried over here on television stations, but uh, I know it was carried on the East Coast. Uh, a guy named Bob McQuinn, uh, just this past week, accidentally threw away his wife's $10,000 wedding ring. Yeah, I, I would love to have been there for that conversation, wouldn't you? Honey, I'm sorry. Well, uh, she immediately cried, of course, and uh, then she uh, sprung into action. She <laughs> made a phone call to the local waste management company, and uh, within just a very short period of time, her husband was at the dump, all suited up. I guess they have a suit for this. It's probably happened more than once, I guess. And so they had him all suited up, and he begins to dig through eight tons of garbage. Now, fortunately, they could show him where his truck had probably been dumped. And so it narrowed it down a little bit for him. But he digs through the garbage, digs through the garbage, and amazingly, he finds the ring. And it is now safely back on her finger, and they are safely married still. You know, love and commitment causes us to do some pretty strange things, doesn't it? Things that other people would consider really strange. I don't think we're ready for that quite yet. Um, do you guys realize there's a video playing? Yeah, there we go. Guess what? That's coming later, okay? Well, anyway, love and commitment causes us to do some really uh, strange things and uh, just do things that other people would think are crazy. Listen, faith, real faith, has the same kind of power. And this morning I want to look at the story of a young man named Jonathan in the Old Testament who does something that seems on the surface really crazy. In fact, if we had seen him do this, we would have forced ourselves to ask, how could somebody do something like that? What would cause somebody to do something so crazy? So if you want to find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 14, that's where I want, the story is found and that's where I want to look. If you've brought your Bible, hope you'll open it up or your phone or your iPad. Would you find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 14? Let me give you just a little historical perspective here to kind of set the story in the right context. The nation of Israel has, finds itself at battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines greatly outnumber the Israelites. The Philistines, if you're reading chapter 13, they had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and they said the soldiers were as numerous as the sand on a seashore. In other words, there were a whole bunch of Philistines and not a lot of Israelites. Not only that, the Philistines had far greater weaponry than did the Israelites. The Philistines had real swords and real weaponry. The Israelites, on the other hand, they were fighting with wood instruments. The only two people in the Israelite camp were the king, King Saul, and Jonathan. They were the only ones that had real swords. Everybody else is fighting with some kind of wood instrument. So they're outnumbered. Their weaponry doesn't match up, and they find themselves hiding in some fear of the Philistines. That's where we pick the story up, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And basically, here's what happened. They have this huge encampment in another place, and in the beginning of chapter 14, about a battalion worth of Philistines moved to this outpost. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, Saul is the king, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, I mean, you can imagine why, right? Uh, would you tell your dad you were going to do something that crazy? Verse 2. Saul 
was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. And among him was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. I don't know why we get all those names. No one, though, was aware that Jonathan had left. Verse 4. On each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Shena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Gibeah. So they're encamped. The Philistines, if you get the picture here, they're at the top of these cliffs. Jonathan and his armor bearer are at the bottom of the cliff. Verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpath of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Verse 7, Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Now, just as a side note, I mean, there's a whole other lesson that we could talk about here in verse 7. Can you imagine this young armor bearer saying to Jonathan, I'm with you. Even though you're doing something that seems absolutely crazy, I'm with you, heart and soul. Verse 8, Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. Good plan. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. That's crazy. I mean, it's crazy to think what Jonathan is proposing that they're going to do. Here's the first thing I want you to notice in this story. I want you to notice what Saul is doing. Saul who is the the king. Saul who is the, the leader of this whole deal. Saul who is Jonathan's dad. Saul, who is the one with the reputation at this point for being a great warrior. You know what Saul's doing? It says in verse 2. Yeah, he's far away from all the action, lying under a pomegranate tree. I mean, can't you just picture it? Lying under the tree, cluster of grapes, a couple of servants fanning him with palm branches. He's sitting on the sidelines. Instead of fighting on the front lines, Saul is choosing to sit on the sidelines. And you know what? A lot of us are sideliners too. Yeah, we're content just to, to watch life go by and not really do anything. In the movie The Incredibles, uh, which you knew I was going to talk about, but I'm not showing the clip yet, so you'll have to keep waiting, okay? In the movie The Incredibles, it's the story about Bob Parr, right? And his family who are in the superhero relocation program. And uh, Bob Parr has been forced to the sidelines. And he doesn't like it. He doesn't enjoy this office job they've given him. He's just a paper pusher now. And he hates it. He wants back in the action. He wants back in the fight. But they won't let him. And so he is miserable. Because he can't be in the action. All he gets to do is watch what's happening. He has become a sideliner. And he hates it. You know what? A lot of us have chosen to be sideliners. And watch life as it goes by. That's what, that was true for Saul. He chose to put himself on the sidelines. Jonathan, on the other hand, goes on the attack. Jonathan leaves the safety of his hiding place and he attacks the enemy head on. 
Jonathan is a fighter. Jonathan refuses to sit on the sidelines. Jonathan is willing to take, wants to live life, even if living life means risking his life. Here's a question I have as I read this story. What is the difference between Saul, who chooses to sit on the sidelines, and Jonathan, who chooses to fight, to really live? What's the difference? I think it's found in the second part of verse 6. Here's Jonathan's words. Jonathan says, Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You know what the difference was? It's one word. Faith. Faith. Jonathan believed and trusted in the power of God to work in his life. And because he believed that, and because he trusted in God, he chose to get into the game. He chose to get into the action. Now, you know what? He knew it was risky because he had no idea how things were going to turn out. I mean, when he and his armor-bearer leave their camp and head out to fight the Philistines, they don't know how this is going to turn out. It was incredibly risky. But to him it was worth taking the risk because he believed in the power of God to work in his life. He chose to get into the fight. You know what? Sideliners or fighters, I think we're all one or the other. We either choose to to sit on the sidelines and just kind of watch life as it goes by or live vicariously through the actions of others. Or we choose to get into the fight. We choose to jump in to what God is doing and experience life as He intended it to be. But here's a really important principle that I want you to get out of this story. In fact, maybe it's the most important principle in this story. You see, if we're going to choose to get into the fight, we're going to choose to join God in what He's doing, then we have to accept this principle that choosing to be a fighter requires us to risk something that is right, even if it could turn out to be wrong. Choosing to be a fighter, choosing to join God in what He's doing requires us to risk something that is right, even if it could turn out to be wrong. Now here's what I mean by that. Jonathan chooses to get into the fight because... He believes in the power of God and he knows that the right thing to do is to stand up for God. The nation of Israel, they were God's nation. And Jonathan determines, I have got to take a stand for God against these Philistines who aren't believers in God. And because of that, he does what he does. But you know what? He has no idea how this is going to turn out. It could turn out really wrong. But he chooses to fight. Now listen, I'm no military expert. In fact, I wasn't even a Boy Scout. But even I can see that this is not good military strategy. I mean, if there were two of you facing a whole battalion of Philistines, wouldn't your only hope be the element of surprise? So wouldn't you think about attacking in the middle of the night? You know, radio silence, stealth movement, sneak up on the enemy. That's not Jonathan's approach. Jonathan's approach is in broad daylight. Hey, here we are. I mean, his plan is so bad, you got to almost laugh. He's crazy. But here's what Jonathan understood. Moving with God is never going to be risk-free. But it does set us free to risk. 
moving with God, joining God in what He is doing is not risk-free, but it sets us free to risk. And Jonathan, because he believed and trusted in the power of God, wanted to move with God even though it was risky. Even though he had no idea how things would ultimately turn out. You know what? Jonathan understood nothing in life is guaranteed. But he believed and trusted in the power of God because he knew God would always come through for him. In fact, listen to what happens to the rest of the story, verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's run in the other direction. No, that's not what it says. He says to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, I'm not a climber. I've never climbed a cliff in my life. But it seems to me that like climbing a cliff, using all of that energy to get to the top of the cliff by the time you got there, the idea of swinging a sword would be the last thing you'd have the strength to do. So this is, a, this is a bad plan from beginning to ending. But listen to what happens, verse 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about a half an acre. Verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties and the ground shook, it was a panic sent from God. They're routing them. In fact, move on down to verse 22 and hear how the story wraps up. When all of the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. So here's what I want you to see. The course of Israel's entire history is changed because of the mindset of one man who believes perhaps the Lord will act in our favor today. What would have happened if Jonathan had chosen to sit on the sidelines like the rest of the Israelites? Nothing would have happened. In fact, it's pretty clear to say, if Jonathan hadn't done anything, then nothing would have happened. Brilliant deduction, right? And sometimes we wonder, why don't amazing things happen in my life? My life. Maybe it's because we've never been willing to risk. Because we've never really trusted God to do His part. I think a lot of us are looking for something amazing. In the movie, The Incredibles, Bob Parr has one of those awful days at the work. He, he's on the sidelines. He's frustrated by life. He wants back in the game. He's looking for something to change. And he comes home at the end of the day and watch what happens. So what are you waiting for? Me too, kid. 
And you know what? For all of us, isn't there some truth? We want to see something amazing happen. We want to experience something amazing in our lives. Far too many of us spend far too much of our lives waiting for something amazing. I think sometimes what we call waiting on God isn't really waiting at all. It's more about a lack of faith. Because we're unwilling to take that that first step and really trust Him. Listen, you know what? None of us know most of the time. We don't know when or how we're going to die. But we can choose how we're going to live. And when Jonathan put himself in this situation, he wasn't choosing to die. He was choosing how he was going to live. He was choosing to take a risk, to join God in what he was doing so that he could see God do something amazing. This morning, we have an opportunity to to make a financial commitment, to take a financial risk by committing to all in. And listen, I'll be honest with you. It's a bit scary to me for my part. Because you know what? I I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And and I can't, and here's really why it's scary, I can't control how it's going to turn out. But I want to have the same mindset that Jonathan did. I want to have the mindset that says, perhaps today God could do something to act on our behalf. I want to have the same kind of unwavering confidence that Jonathan had in the capacity of God to do something great. And the same kind of incredible trust in the character of God to be faithful to do the kinds of things He's promised to do. So this morning we have this this opportunity to take a risk. Listen, what Jonathan did was adventurously expectant. And I, that's, that's how I want us to live. I, I want to be part of a group of people, a church that is living adventurously expectant. I don't want to be part of, of a mediocre, normal, play-it-safe, average, take-it-easy kind of church. I want to be part of a church that is filled with risk-takers. And you know what? I I hope that this won't just be a one-day, one-time act on our part. That this won't just be about taking some kind of financial risk. But that Crosspoint will be described as people who every day in their lives are asking, what adventurous, life-changing, people-changing action could I take for God today? I want us to be risk-takers. Today's a really special day. Today is the day to take a risk. And it's a day that, that we'll, we'll never forget. But I'm hoping today that it's just the first time in a long, 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 long line of days where we were willing to take risk for God. Because after all, God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. And this resurrection life that we receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is adventurously expected. And so I'm asking you today that you would join me, not just in this moment, but for the rest of our history, 
and being a church that is known as adventurously expectant. A church full of risk takers for God. People who take risks for God because we want to see people come to know Jesus as their Savior. I hope you'll join me in that. Let's pray together. God, we want to be risk takers. I'm so thankful for Jonathan's story, for uh, the difference that he made because he got off the sidelines and he took a risk, even though he had no idea how it would turn out. God, I want to be that kind of risk taker. And I pray that you'd make us, our church, Crosspoint, risk takers like that. God, risk takers in this moment as we make financial commitments, but risk takers far beyond this as we take risk every day to point people to Jesus. Thanks, God, for how you're going to work in these next few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.